Happy New Year and welcome back to the New Zealand China Council podcast for 2024. I'm Alistair Crozier, the Executive Director of the Council. In late 2023, our Council released our latest research report, Tasting the Future, China's Sustainable Protein Outlook. The report was commissioned by the Council's Sustainable Food Working Group, established last year to reflect New Zealand's growing focus on where China is headed when it comes to sustainable food. From an export and market perspective, as a potential source of future investment capital for our own innovators, and as one indicator of China's steps to address environmental degradation and climate change. There are plenty of Chinese consumer sentiment surveys available in this area these days, most suggesting that the market's focus on an understanding of food sustainability is at a very early stage. We took a different approach, focusing in on the Chinese government's future strategic policy and regulatory settings because we know that often Chinese producers and consumers respond to signals from the government, not the other way around. A big thank you to Council member the Meat Industry Association, as well as Plant and Food Research and the North Asia Centre for Asia Pacific Excellence for generously sponsoring the report, and to Trivium China for a top quality research product. It's available on our website, nzchinacouncil.org.nz. Our online event to launch the report was very ably moderated by Cleo Gilmore, a member of our council and chair of the Sustainable Food Working Group. Please listen on for a fascinating discussion on China's future in this critical area amongst four wahine toa who are all experts in this field. Tenakoto, tenakoto, tenakoto katoa. Dajahao. It is my absolute pleasure to be moderating our panel discussion on tasting the future sustainable protein outlooks in China. We have an amazing panel lineup for you today. Um, and it's been wonderful to chair the working group and talk, discuss, and work with such a diverse range of experts and innovators in the protein space in New Zealand. My own interest in sustainable food in the New Zealand-China relationship began working as a digital marketer, helping New Zealand brands enter China and market themselves in China. I've since co-founded uh, my own food technology startup called Lilo Desserts uh, and work as a content creator on Chinese social media. But today it's all about our amazing report and our fantastic lineup of panelists. Even Megan, Christiana, thank you so much for being with us today. To kick off, I'll get you all to take yourselves off mute and we'll do a quick round of introductions. So Even, can you please take it away? Thank you so much, Cleo. First off, I just want to say it's an absolute pleasure to be here with everyone today. My name is Even Pei. I run Trivium China's agriculture practice. Trivium is a boutique advisory firm that provides both subscription and bespoke coverage and analysis of Chinese government policies and their impacts on the business environment and on markets. Our clients include a wide range of multinational companies, industry associations, investors, government bodies, and groups like this one uh, here today. Personally, I studied Chinese language as an undergraduate and started coming to China in 2003. I moved to China in 2005 and spent most of the last 18 years living and working in Beijing, um, focused on agriculture and sustainability across a series of roles that included working in government, nonprofits. I started working with Trivium in 2019. Last, I, I just wanted to note that I was raised on a ranch in 
rural Western South Dakota in the Western U.S. And I guess that makes it fair to say I have some firsthand experience with protein production. So this topic is one that's very personal for me, in addition to being incredibly important for the world. Thank you, Cleo. Amazing. Thank you, Evan. I've learned so much from working with you and it's been an absolute pleasure. So looking forward to hearing more today. Um, let's pass it over to the wonderful Megan, who I believe is dialing in from Shanghai. Hi, kia ora, ni hao, hello, um, and thank you, Cleo. My name is Megan Robertson, and I am Fonterra's China Ingredients Business Sustainability Lead. Today, I'm calling in from Shanghai. Um, Shanghai has been my home for one and a half years now. Before re relocating here to China, I worked for, in New Zealand for Farm Source, which is our farmer-facing part of Fonterra. I was brought up on a dairy farm on the west coast of New Zealand in a small town called Hari Hari. It's quite a contrast to my life now in Shanghai, but it's fantastic to be here today to learn more about China's sustainable protein outlook. Thanks, Cleo. Awesome work, Megan. Thank you so much. Love that straight from a small town in New Zealand to big city Shanghai. What an experience. Um, and last but not least, um, Christiana, please give us an introduction. Thank you, Cleo. Kia ora, everyone. My name is Christiana Ju. I am from Auckland, Tamaki uh, Makoto, and uh, I have been living in China now for about eight years. I'm calling in also from Shanghai, like Megan. Um, I am from Marvelous Foods, and uh, we are a VC-backed new protein packaged foods company here based in China. Our mission is to uh, help further the future of sustainable food um, by creating consumer-focused solutions and meeting the consumers where they are with new protein and sustainable foods. So being focused on the China market here, we've chosen to begin with the ingredient, a plant-based ingredient, coconut now, because plant-based is actually more uh, developed and consumer-ready right now. And then co coconut is actually a really popular product already for consumers here. So we operate under a brand called Yay. We uh, have a flagship product, which is China's first sugar-free, low-temperature probiotic coconut yogurt. And we also have gelato and sports drinks as well. You can find our products here, both on e-commerce and Tmall. So we have a Tmall store. We are at Aldi and City Super, some uh, supermarkets, which uh, a lot of Kiwi, great Kiwi products are also in. And then we're um, in some uh, food service channels as well. And now with, I guess, the post-COVID era and FMB kind of restarting again, we're going to do a lot more in food service in the coming year as well. So I'm really excited to uh, share kind of what we see on the ground here. I mean, given that we are consumer focused, we are um, laser focused on getting that pulse of what consumers care about when it comes to uh, sustainability messaging or, um, you know, just generally what, what sells. Having had a background actually working for Tourism New Zealand, I am very passionate about New Zealand Inc. I'm very passionate about how we uh, share our resources within the Kiwi kind of um, I guess, intelligence network, uh, business intelligence network, I guess that's how, how we grow together. So um, yeah, really, really cool to be a part of this panel. And I look forward to the discussion. Amazing. And I'm personally a huge fan of that coconut yogurt. So if anyone is up in China and is able to get their hands on, can highly recommend and just absolutely love that Kiwi China connection that you bring um, to your business, Christiana. So thank you. So today, how it's going to work is the lovely Evan is going to give us a short presentation on the key points and takeaways from our research report. Um, that we're then going to open it up to a wider panel discussion. Without further ado, um, Evan, I think we'll get you to kick into your presentation. But before you do, I just have a quick question around 
Could you tell us a little bit more around China policy? Why we decided to focus on the policy side of China for this report? And why is that so important in the China context? So that's a, it's a really crucial question. I mean, I think we're all aware that globally questions about the environmental impact and sustainability of food are increasingly front and center for consumers, for policymakers, and for farmers and the agribusinesses that keep us fed. And China is no exception. So four months ago, uh, when we first started having this conversation, um, when Trivium first responded to the request for proposals from the Sustainable Food Working Group, we found that our thinking was pretty aligned um, around this question of policy. We started off the report focusing on the key goal, um, and that was to identify how current Chinese sustainability policies are impacting and are likely to impact China's market for protein and its investment into protein over the coming decade. And the question of why hasn't this report or why, why didn't we dig in more deeply on consum consumer preferences and trends um, is a really crucial one. And my answer to that is really threefold. First of all, it's, it's a hugely complex puzzle. Understanding trends and preferences that are driving consumption for 1.4 billion consumers is it extremely data intensive. It varies across geographies. It varies you know, drastically across uh, socioeconomic levels. To do it right, you need to do extensive focus groups. You need to do surveys. Um, you need to work with consumers directly. And in many cases, you know, that's what, what our, our, our companies are already doing. And they're focused narrowly on the consumer segments that are most relevant for their businesses. But contrary to what you may have heard, China's policymakers are actually surprisingly transparent and predictable by comparison to consumers, right? If you know where to look, they're generally telling you what their plan is um, well in advance. And so as we began to approach this question, we understood um, that in China's agriculture and food sector, that not only do we get clear policy signals that cut across relevance for just about every agri-food business, but they have a really unique ability to shape markets in China's context. That's true in some big ways, like how reform and opening policy has created the world's largest import market for food and agricultural products over the last four, four decades. Um, it's true in ways like how Beijing has directed hundreds of millions of yuan in supporting its domestic dairy sector over the last decade. But it's also true in some really smaller and more technical ways, um, like how changes to specific rules for something like a food additive or a livestock medicine or a product label can suddenly reshape uh, export market access overnight. Um, and that's a challenge I think that New Zealand is truly familiar with. And crucially, we also know that policy efforts can shape public awareness. And that's you know, eventually it shapes consumer preferences and sometimes kicks off trends. Um, and that's especially true in China, where you see policy goals amplified, you know, across state media in a way that can reach a billion people in the span of a few days. And so we taking that on board, we saw that China's government strategies, plans and policies are providing basically clear road signs that indicate where leadership is taking the country and guardrails to guide investment and development.
And following consumer sentiment is obviously incredibly important, but understanding medium and long-term food policy and regulatory settings um, is also crucial for New Zealand producers, especially because there's an increasing number of them uh, related directly to sustainability and food. So as we began to devise our report, we reviewed high-level party documents, five-year plans, key laws and regulations across the space, um, dozens of food and packaging standards at the national level. And we also reviewed uh, a wide range of articles and reports from industry associations and investors across the livestock, fisheries, dairy, and new protein space. And that's how we began digging in to the report. After that initial lit review, basically, we started taking a very focused look at, in two areas. Um, first, we reviewed a decade of increasing emphasis on sustainability policy in Beijing. When Xi Jinping came to power in 2012, he immediately signaled um, that environmental protection was one of the highest uh, issues on his policy priority list. During that first party Congress where he took leadership of the party, he also pushed for the inclusion of the concept of ecological civilization into the party's constitution and into the development plan that would guide the next 10 years. And simply put, what he called for was for the environment to be valued and managed similarly to the way China had, has previously planned um, its economic policy. And uh, within the report, we dig in some detail into the a policy timeline and the context around the rising priority on sustainability and environmental policy that we've seen eventuate over the last decade in China as a result. And following that, we dug into China's agricultural policy complex, and particularly we began to look at the national and sectoral five-year plans in some depth. What you can see on the left here is some of the detail that came out of that effort as we identified across 11 national level uh, five-year plans, key targets and key planks that were directly related to the protein space and in many cases to sustainability as well. These plans basically lay out Beijing's to-do list for the next half decade. And they tell us exactly how the party and the national cabinet and each ministry and agency is approaching sustainability, as well as other aspects of agricultural and food policy. And that tells us, you know, not just what the most important goals and targets are in the medium term, but it also indicates where policy is most likely to shift. So as we look to predict what's going to happen over the next five to 10 years, if something is likely to change, we'll see it here. And that was the method methodological foundation for the report. As everyone here knows, on the, our panel knows, you know, there's 40 pages of sort of deeply technical additional detail. If you're interested, if you want to see what's in all of these five-year plans and so on, definitely encourage folks to dig in more deeply into the report. In the interest of time, though, we're going to talk about just a, a handful of our key takeaways today before opening up for questions and panel discussion as well. So the first of our key takeaways we saw that China isn't yet translating its climate ambition into targets within the agri-food sector. We identified a long list of areas in which Beijing is engaging with sustainability in, in its agricultural policy. And that includes agendas like 
improving the management of livestock waste generated by large-scale farms, reducing uh, pollution as a result of that, reducing food waste at every link in the supply chain, reducing food packaging waste, um, though of course not where it could stand to impact food safety. And these efforts have a few things in common. They're predominantly focused on solving local environmental problems, pollution that is visible and smellable in the local environment. And they're, they're mostly focused on the supply side. Um, that is a heavy focus on changing the pra practices of domestic farms, domestic food producers, domestic supply chains. And so far, they've remained much less focused on encouraging sustainable consumption on the demand side. So crucially, uh, we also found that Beijing is just now, um, this year, beginning to collect data about greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture. Um, it's building a granular picture of that data for the first time. And we recognize that that's a necessary first step for eventually setting emissions reduction targets. But those targets are not yet in place, either in sort of a qualitative or a quantitative way. But crucially, this doesn't mean that New Zealand producers should just wait and see what happens. Um, the government has sent very clear signals about what's eventually going to happen. It's just not coming yet. And New Zealand, as a leading producer of really high quality and sustainably produced protein, has something of a head start when it comes to climate and environmentally friendly products. But that head start is probably limited given how fast China tends to change and develop. So companies that want to seize opportunities created by this climate ambition, which we assume will eventually eventuate into the agri-food sector, they need to move fast. Um, and hone those value propositions and understand how China's market, its policymakers, and eventually consumers are likely to begin looking for those more sustainable options. And crucially here, uh, we've already seen a first batch of major Chinese livestock and dairy companies announce targets and goals around achieving net zero. And some of those companies, um, including Ely and Mengnyo, two major dairy producers, have announced targets that are more ambitious than the nationally prescribed call to achieve carbon neutrality before 2060. So we know that as these companies, domestic companies begin to move in advance of regulation and begin to push for carbon neutrality, that they'll also begin to build consumer awareness in order to help um, build value in those new products that they're offering. Our next funding, is that food security is a really non-negotiable priority for Beijing. And this shapes the sustainability space in a number of ways. Beijing is still targeting a really high level of self-sufficiency across a few key food categories, including in the protein space. And is regulators are concerned about anything that could push up reliance on imports any further or otherwise trade off with the ample affordable supply of food to the Chinese people. And regulators basically have made it very clear that they'll stop short of adopting any sustainability strategies that threaten food security, including anything that would trade off with domestic production of agri-food products broadly, or anything that would likely push up prices in a significant way. But that doesn't mean that all sustainability efforts will move slow in China's context. In fact, we identified a number of areas 
where because of the emphasis of food security, they could actually move surprisingly fast. And these are areas where regulators view food security and sustainability as aligned. One example of this is in reducing food waste along supply chains. That ensures more food reaches the market, which immediately boosts food security. And it also translates into less pressure on land and water use because a portion of that food isn't spoiled or wasted. We've seen very, very significant investments into improving cold chains, for example, in order to reduce food loss and waste along the supply chain. And that will also benefit New Zealand producers in getting all kinds of agri-food products and most especially protein to market via cold chain. Um, but a second example of this that is important to have on the radar is alternative and novel proteins, which are attracting increasing in, in attention from investors and regulators alike. And these products are really diverse. And I'll stop short of saying that all of them are sustainable or that they're more sustainable than a traditional protein product. Beijing does view them as a tool for reducing the land and water footprint of its domestic agriculture and potentially for reducing its dependence on imports. Still, it's also really important here to acknowledge that regulatory concerns about food safety are definitely also limiting the pace at which any kind of novel foods are being allowed to enter the market. Um, so two of the case studies that we have included in the report fall into this category. They have products that are waiting for regulatory approval because they were designed using biotechnology, and there's still a pretty hard barrier to adopting those novel food products. Still, that said, if we know that all of these novel approaches are on the radar, um, and they're entering the conversation at the very highest levels, and we know that because it's come out in policy statements at the most senior levels of leadership with even Xi Jinping himself talking about looking for ways to extract more calories and protein um, from plants, animals, and microorganisms, which means that this is going well beyond regulators and innovators discussing these solutions. You know, it's up there at the Politburo Standing Committee level. Um, so last but not least, all of the policy drivers that we discussed above and a few more um, that are highlighted in the report that we haven't had time to delve into today are impacting Chinese investments, both domestically and beyond China's borders. That's creating a number of risks in some cases, but for the most part, it's creating a great deal of opportunities uh, for New Zealand producers, for innovators, and for investors to partner up. And in order to do that effectively, it's our contention that understanding the policy drivers those motivations around not just sustainability, but also food security, food safety, and innovation are really crucial and positioning, positioning ourselves to take advantage of the opportunities that are being created in this rapidly changing space. So with that, I'll bring the presentation to a close and hand back to Cleo. As we move into our panel discussion, I would just again, encourage everyone if you have further questions, to feel free to get in touch and to download and explore the report in full. We hope that it can be a valuable resource in outlining what's on the policy agenda and what's not yet on the policy agenda and where things are going next in China. Thank you. Amazing. Thank you so much, Evan. And just Wow, like the number of things you've touched on there from investment to food security to packaging, food waste, emissions, 
It's such a juicy report, and you've done a phenomenal job of taking China policy, something that can feel quite intimidating and very confusing, um, and making it accessible and relevant. So thank you so much for doing that. And to those of you at home looking to read the report, highly recommend. Even and the team have included snapshots in each section with key takeaways for New Zealand exporters as well. Um, so there's some really great insights there on what all this means as well as the substantive content itself. And from what you're saying, even early days on a lot of this policy, right? But we know with China, when they decide to move, they can really move at pace. And so I think this report is fantastic for giving us an idea of what's coming down the track, as well as being a snapshot in time. And I would love to bring in our other wonderful panelists on the ground, running businesses in this environment, and hear from you about what your key takeaways or key surprises were in this report and how that's relating to your operations at the moment. So Megan, if we can start with you at Fonterra, because I know you guys have an impressive presence on the ground. Um, you and your role must do a lot of work on this. So tell us about um, what you found in the report interesting. Fantastic. As Fonterra, we, we welcome this report. Um, the evolution of China's sustainability policy here is so relevant to us, given what we're seeing here in market. Sustainability is starting to move with some real certainty towards being a, a commercial proposition moving forward. Um, this report is also really important that we understand um, the breakdown of the various elements driving the big picture sustainability shift. And this report really does help us to do that. And we're really happy to see that China is progressing on its sustainability journey. New Zealand farmers have been leaders in sustainability for, for quite some generations now. And the fact that we hold sustainability as one of our key pillars demonstrates our commitment to maintaining this leadership position. Um, at Fonterra, we actually recently announced our on-farm emissions reduction target of 30% intensity reduction by 2030 from a 2018 baseline. So our low-carbon footprint and pasture-based farming system puts us in a good place relative to where some of the Chinese sustainability requirements are likely to head in the future. Um, but we recognise we also need to be continuously improving in the sustainability space too. As for what jumped out from um, for us from the report, there's a really clear message that food security is the number one priority here in China, um, and that will be prioritised over sustainability when the two do clash. Agriculture isn't the main focus for sustainability policy here, um, and policies will only be implemented when solutions are seen as feasible um, and won't impact on production. The areas where um, we saw sustainability focuses do overlap with agriculture here are where it has the direct environmental pollution, um, water, chemicals, fossil fuels, effluent. Um, and for greenhouse gas emissions, it's currently a case of establishing and monitoring ahead of future regulations. One area that we will watch with quite some interest is the second tier, more regionally specific climate regulations. First question is um, whether this will work and second is whether this will be expanded moving forward. Another area that, that stood out was the clear focus on packaging and recyclability, particularly um, with excessive packaging. But again, um, in the China context, food safety is of utmost importance to regulators. And so where packaging supports food safety, um, this won't be compromised. Therefore, as a, as a food producer into China, it isn't an immediate concern, but something we'll keep a watching brief on. Um, and finally, also quite interesting to note the early movements in the policy space from investors and producers towards the role of 
novel proteins in addressing China's climate objectives. As with other markets, this is something we will monitor, but we remain confident that the role our natural New Zealand grass-fed dairy will continue to play in nourishing a growing number of Chinese dairy consumers. Overall, this report confirms that as an exporter to, um, of sustainable food products, New Zealand is quite well positioned to support China in meeting both its food security and sustainability ambitions. Thanks, Cleo. Amazing. Um, so many interesting points there. And I think that packaging one particularly is one that we're seeing touch on consumers a lot more closely, right? Whereas if we're thinking about the difference between policy and consumer, consumer maybe not seeing so much in the sustainability realm, aside from in that packaging and food waste side. Um, Christiana, I'm sure you've had some insights in on this. How is sustainability affecting your business and your operations? Uh, yeah, um, actually, I think that food packaging thing is uh, very interesting because when I was reflecting on what the consumers here understand about sustainability, I think that is uh, one of the kind of top level, I guess, understandings that everybody shares. I mean, if we look at uh, Western markets, people um, have a deeper understanding of environmental impact of the supply chain um, from a carbon perspective, like, you know, calculating uh, kind of thinking broader beyond the scope three type of emissions, even uh, as individual consumers within your daily consumption. But in China, uh, that understanding is not there. Not that they don't care, but it's just um, the education has not been put out by uh, various media entities and uh, companies themselves. So people just are at a different stage. But one um, point of difference is definitely on packaging. So I think what we see is though, because the packaging stuff also came through regulation. China has, and this is also outlined in the report, uh, that China has uh, some big goals on uh, single-use plastic. And as a, uh, I remember in 2019, all of a sudden, all the uh, deliveries turned to biodegradable plastic bags. Um, that was one thing coming from New Zealand as well. I realized that supermarkets were charging for plastic bags here um, because they were required to do so, not because consumers were giving pressure to do so, right? From another perspective as well, EVs. China's got the biggest uh, penetration of electric vehicle use uh, globally. And it's actually because uh, if you're in Beijing, where I lived for eight years even as well, you needed to go into a lottery to actually get a license plate to buy a car. So not everybody who even has the money could buy a car as a matter of luck. However, the difference was with EVs, you didn't, right? So that uh, sort of stuff really, really uh, accelerates the adoption from the consumer perspective. Of course, I think there are definitely opportunities that we could look at to accelerate new protein adoption within the market as well if we position ourselves now that we know that that's definitely coming with the uh, policy side, but we now position ourselves uh, closer to just the key drivers for cons uh, consumers every day, right? So, um, and some of these things are align with what we do if we are producing sustainable products anyway. So that's nutrition is definitely, you know, top origin and kind of, I guess, the believability or the the quality or like how much they can trust the transparency of origin i think that sort of stuff is something that we can put in the front of our communications hierarchy when marketing to this market whilst at the same time kind of considering and keeping your finger on the pulse of when the shift does happen because consumers are more and more talking about lower carbon lifestyles, uh, kids are being taught about it at school, and uh, companies, I, I remember visiting Alibaba uh, campus and seeing 
even in the bathrooms, you know, messaging about low carbon. So eventually that will come. And when it changes, as um, Claire mentioned, it changes at China speed. I saw this in the tourism industry uh, when uh, back in 20, 2009, I guess, uh, 2010, China went from number five within the inbound uh, traveler market to number three with, uh, sorry, to number two, actually, within the space of two to three years. So when that tap opens, it does open really fast. And New Zealand definitely is a well positioned to be able to, to keep riding on that wave and being kind of leaders in the space too. Mm. So interesting around that messaging hierarchy, right, around your food and the story that you're telling. Even there were a number of companies in the report you mentioned who were setting carbon neutrality and sustainability targets ahead of what the government was setting. Did these come a surprise to you? And are they really ahead of um, government targets in this regard? I, that's a fantastic question. Um, there are only a couple of companies that have set, a, I guess, major livestock and dairy companies that have set an ambitious, a target that is more ambitious than China's national target, which is to achieve carbon neutrality before 2060. So there are just a couple of companies that are aiming at 2050, you know, 10 years early um, relative to the national target. Um, one of the features that we noticed about those companies that had chosen to take on sort of a public commitment to any target, uh, carbon neutrality target whatsoever, was that all of them are publicly listed. And I think a piece of the story there is that companies that are listed publicly on you know, any exchange are accountable for doing some basic sustainability reporting as well. And that creates a feedback loop, right? Anytime you're, uh, you can't manage what you can't measure, but by the same token, if you're measuring it, you're probably gonna start managing it, generally speaking. And so pretty consistently, you know, having 100% of those companies that have announced a target mapped to companies that were publicly listed rather than privately held sent us a signal that a piece of what's happening is that companies that are forced to have an internal conversation about sustainability begin to get more ambitious, begin to understand they need to take action and begin to build a strategy um, that will play well for investors, right, about how we're, how they actually need to achieve those targets and when they'll be able to do so. So certainly that's, you know, explaining one aspect of why companies are showing um, some ambition and getting ready um, to deliver on carbon neutrality targets. That said, I think companies also recognize that as policy changes, and there are clear signals that policy will change probably right around 2030 is the key marker there. Um, so China has targeted to peak its greenhouse gas emissions by 2030 and then pursue neutrality by 2060. And China doesn't need the agriculture sector to contribute during that pre-2030 effort to peak emissions. Um, regulators aren't looking to set a quantitative target around peaking during that period. But once China starts to pursue neutrality, it will need the agri-food sector also to make contributions toward that end. So these companies, you know, large Chinese companies with large government affairs departments and good channels of communication um, into what regulators are looking for, they're well aware, right, that in the medium term, there will be some pressure 
to move toward carbon neutrality. Um, and so they're getting ready. Um, they're getting ready in advance. And they understand that the more policymakers talk about these targets and the more public awareness efforts happen from, you know, among policymakers, among state media, that that will begin to overflow also into some groups of consumers. And that can really create a virtuous cycle. So if a company like Ely Group, the dairy giant, which we've profiled in one of the case studies in the report, um, begin to introduce zero carbon dairy, um, which, which they've launched the first product, you know, that's probably not going to have an overwhelming appeal across every market segment. But there is a group of consumers, you know, in a country of 1.4 billion people, it's probably a large number of consumers that are interested in that product already. And it's going to create a virtuous cycle that will mm -hmm. spread more awareness, create mm -hmm. more value in those products, and hopefully, you know, help to fund companies as they look to make that transition as well. Mm. Yeah, it is really interesting to see the government set those targets and then companies fall in line or really stand up and say, hey, actually, we're going to be ahead of the game. And interesting, you touched on some of those Ely with its China first plant-based, sorry, carbon neutral yogurt, um, carbon neutral milk, and the way that they're weaving those sustainability messages and the impact that will then have on consumers. Megan, when Fonterra is looking at this, are you guys currently messaging in China with a sustainability angle or do you think you will move towards this? Yeah, for us, sustainability is becoming um, a really intertwined theme into the marketing of many of our products here in China. For some of our products and categories, we've been doing it for quite some time and others, it's new and it's starting to become a real focus for us. Um, I'll, I'll give a couple of examples. For our B2B ingredients business, um, the sustainability narrative runs quite deeply through our value proposition. And probably one of the more tangible examples is our customers' usage of our sustainability and provenance bond cat claims, like grass-fed. So this is where we work alongside our customers um, and, they, and we help them to communicate our sustainability and natural dairy story to their end consumers. We provide them with our on-farm proof points, images, and videos. And for our B2C business, um, we, sustainability plays a good um, key role in helping us to premiumize our in-market position. So in conjunction with our lineup of organic products here in China, we also recently launched an anchor grass-fed 4.4 um, grams high-protein UHT. Well, New Zealand has a great sustainability story and value proposition for us to use. And our farmers back in New Zealand are doing some fantastic work on farm. So it's our job here in market just to showcase this and, and get the value back. Yeah, really interesting. And back to sort of Christiana's point on messaging hierarchy, right? It's like, how is sustainability beneficial to consumers? How is it telling you that it's delicious and yummy and good for you? Which I really think is such an opportunity for New Zealand exporters to dominate and be a leader in this space. Um, we've actually got an awesome question from the audience, um, from Echo. So do you think China's going to set down grass-fed standards for meat and dairy products? If so, how and when? Even I'll start with you on this one. And if Megan, if you have anything or thoughts or opinions and you want to jump in, please do. That's a fantastic question. And I'm glad we went there next as grass-fed. The topic of grass-fed has come up. I think obviously that's a great example of where sort of those personal concerns around, is this product healthy? Is this product clean? Um, 
can intersect then with a wider sustainability message um, in the dairy sector. In terms of, I guess, progress towards setting a standard around labeling of, uh, of beef or dairy products around grass-fed, I haven't specifically looked into the status of, I guess, policy progress toward a grass-fed standard. So I don't want to tell you whether, you know, there's one that's two months away or six months away or a year away. I can't tell you that right now. But what I do know from our broad survey of uh, regulation and planning processes is there is currently a major push toward promoting grass-fed livestock and dairy in China's context. And that push is coming, again, less from the consumer side and more from interest in a specific aspect of production, which is the food security aspect of livestock feed supply chains. So China has vast tracts of pasture land that are underutilized for feeding livestock. And instead, many of the dairy and livestock operations that are located along the East Coast are still feeding very heavily using grains and oil seeds. And there's interest now in the policy complex of looking to better utilize China's domestic grasslands um, for livestock production and to reduce some of that import dependence. And that's a loud, clear signal that we see you know, within national policy, both in five-year plans and some of the annual policy documents in the ag sector, which pretty much guarantees to me that we're gonna see Uh, the regulations and detailed standards to follow. The way those standards will be rolled out, it won't be something that's sort of a mandatory regulatory requirement. It will be an effort to increase the appeal of grass-fed products so that consumers buy them more, so that companies that use, you know, grass-fed will be able to profit and grow. And of course, my assumption there is that anytime there's a national food standard that allows, you know, for a grass-fed label, for example, that those sort of standards will equally apply to any imported product. So uh, it would enable, for example, New Zealand dairy to also take advantage of more education around grass-fed and sort of clearer rules around what actually constitutes grass-fed as well. Mm, interesting. Um, Megan, uh, I imagine this is something you guys have your eyes closely on at Fonterra. Yeah, grass-fed is something that we're really trying to lean into at the moment. And for our overall um, sustainability story, grass-fed definitely is sort of that that underpinning piece where it's something very unique to New Zealand, um, especially our our New Zealand grass-fed story. I suppose with with a standard, um, the the definition of grass-fed, it can mean a lot of different things to lots of different countries. Um, Say for New Zealand, grass-fed is, um, it's not only what you feed the cows, but it's also where the cows are when they're eating that grass. So uh, a standard of such um, in, in China or the US might, might be a bit different where the time out on pasture isn't so long. In terms of um, understanding the when and how this might come to fruition in China, um, it's also something we will keep our eye on um, at Frontera, but something um, I, I don't have the answer for today, unfortunately. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, which really raises quite a good point, right, of how businesses can keep abreast and sort of find information on policy changes in China? Because I know from my experience, you do a lot of research into consumer, but China policy is not always as accessible. Christiana, do you have any tips as someone on the ground, someone growing a business of how to do this? 
or how to look at policy. <laughs> yeah, or just sort of, yeah. Um, I honestly, I think um, business people talk to each other about this uh, mm. because there's a general understanding that when you do business in China, that if you want to do anything, you have to uh, look to policy there. Uh, it's actual, just, uh, I guess, basic hygiene uh, yeah. for us doing business here. So, yeah, I mean, I, the forums such as this, I think is fantastic for uh, the New Zealand community. I have heard from my other expat friends from other countries that maybe they don't have it as accessible. <laughs> um, yeah, and when I post this sort of thing on LinkedIn, uh, yeah, I, I'm connected with, uh, I guess, the green community globally. People are impressed that New Zealand is um, doing this sort of thing. So so definitely, I think, stay clued in to these think tanks, to these to, to other people within the business community uh, working in the space. Absolutely. Perks of being a, a small country operating yeah. as hopefully collaboratively overseas. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Holding it down. Um, Megan, I'll throw you the same question because I imagine you guys have teams and people who, um, who are in charge of this. Yeah, I think with the general trend and what we're seeing in this report, whereby sustainability is um, of growing interest in China, like elsewhere in the world, it's so important that we stay abreast of what these policy developments are. Um, can understand that it's it's quite a difficult and daunting task for foreign businesses operating in China to, to stay on top of this sort of thing. Um, but for Fonterra, we're fortunate enough to be resourced with six regulatory staff that are based here in China. Um, and we also draw from a range of tools to keep across changes regarding sustainability policy. We also recently commissioned our own piece of work to look into China's sustainability landscape. Now, of course, most smaller exporters won't have six regulatory staff on the ground, but another key component, um, just what Christiana mentioned, is utilising the networks um, of the sort of smaller exporters here in China. So relationships with distributors, with NZTE um, and other businesses, and the New Zealand Business Roundtable is also a, a mm -hmm. really useful network for teams based here in China. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was another really great podcast um, by the China Council, which featured a couple of members from the Business Roundtable. So those listening in today are worth checking that out as well. And even, you know, you as someone who has their finger on the pulse, of course, people can work with Trivium to understand more about policy. Um, but do you have any um, tidbits on where people can go for information, um, how to find out more? Yeah, absolutely. We love this stuff. If anybody finds their way to the Trivium website, you can sign up for a, a free daily update and a variety of paid subscriptions that are an easy way to sort of keep a vague finger on the pulse of a wide range of Chinese regulatory issues. But looking beyond, you know, our sort of service offerings, I think just about every major multinational has, you know, a large government affairs function that their day-to-day -day work, their bread and butter is staying across regulation and joining roundtables directly with policymakers in an attempt to help inform, to advise, to ask questions, to you know, solve problems. But for smaller and medium-sized businesses, to some degree, you know, it can present a pretty, a pretty steep challenge beyond some of the resources you've already listed and absolutely, you know, business roundtables and so on. I think uh, chambers of commerce are a great resource. And I would encourage anyone with a smaller, medium-sized business to consider exploring opportunities to join chambers of commerce beyond just the one associated with your own country. 
a lot of them are actually very open to all kinds of members from anywhere. And it's a, particularly if your company offers a solution that is also widely offered in another national market, you know, talk to those potential competitors because they're also collaborators and go and team up with them in an industry association or uh, through a chamber of commerce as well. I've found them to be very very, very open and and super useful in terms of setting up working groups that cooperate around regulatory change. Um, the European Union uh, Chamber of Commerce in particular works very closely on agriculture and food related issues and, you know, responding to detailed calls for comments on specific packaging regulations and so on. So that, you know, is just one more resource to add to the list of potential resources. Amazing. Straight from the expert right there. And that Trivium One Thing from Beijing is an awesome little bulletin that you can get straight to your inbox. So I would highly recommend people sign up for that. I would love to talk a little bit more now on the mentions of alternative and novel proteins in the report. Um, because this was something that we kind of saw straight from Xi's mouth up the top, you know, widening, broadening that conception of food, um, looking to other sources of nutrition and protein. And as you mentioned, um, Christiana, with the EV example, when China decides to invest in something and get behind innovation in something, we can really see extreme just leapfrogging in that technology. And alternative protein is nothing if not edible technology, right? So how are you seeing shifting attitudes towards investment in alternative protein in China? I know you closed a successful funding round recently. Congratulations. Um, tell us a bit more about the investment sphere. This is a very, very interesting question. So there are multiple layers. And um, first, I'm going to go out and say our, all of our funding was actually from the US and, uh, and Europe, um, and also the impact investors as well. So we have a longer view of, you know, what is the world we want to build in 50 years, right? Um, but most of the investment right now in China, to be very, very honest, especially in the private sector, is around um, kind of basic how fast can I make my money back? Like if I look at the yeah. um, VC um, that I talked to in China versus versus Europe, you know, their, their kind of timeline is maybe within five years, we want you to IPO, right? Whereas um, maybe more, <laughs> more funds in the US would be like a five plus three or, you know, a seven year thing or impact funds are even longer. Um, but the really interesting thing is that there are Chinese players going into uh, the impact or novel protein space. But for them, either it's either like we're going to invest in something that's going to give a five year return or we're going to invest in something that's going to give a 20-year return. And a lot of that is actually within the cell cultivated mm. space and precision fermentation. So, yeah, um, I've got yeah friends within the space as well. I was just over at CellX last week. Um, they are China's first cultivated meat company. Um, and so for them, they've got interesting yeah, Chinese kind of primary sector companies invested in them, um, also Chinese dairy companies looking into the space as well, uh, because they really, I think, look at what they're doing is not, um, they're not a dairy company, they're a protein company, or they're a food company, and really looking at like, within, you know, that what's the next thing that could kind of help take the pressure off uh, the protein that is required from animals. So I think this is one thing that I can see uh, landing right now in the investment space in China. Mm. Now, having said that, I think that with the short-term um, opportunities that could come from the carbon 
like neutrality messaging and the low carbon interests for consumers, that could open up a new opportunity for plant-based or for kind of more um, sustainable packaged foods that's not necessarily like new protein uh, stuff within the next 10 years. Because China, whilst they're very forward uh, looking and, and long-term looking with that investment, they are actually one of the places that are going to be maybe the latest allow, I guess, your cultivated meat to actually hit the market. This is discussions from these guys who are working in that space. So they're looking at, okay, we'll develop the technology now, but actually the market for the cultivated meat is probably not going to be in China for another 10 years or more. Um, so I think in that kind of medium term and short term, there are going to be opportunities that open up. And I think um, the other good news about Chinese capital learning to become more patient, I mean, we have to really understand the whole context of everything, right? Like uh, Chinese kind of capital markets, private equity markets didn't really emerge until the last 10 years, right? And that sort of thing. And it actually came out of real estate. So people have been educated that within real estate, you can get really really fast returns um, and that's how they've been educated right in terms of how this capital market works but now that the property bubble has burst uh, things are really right sizing and so like okay it feels a little bit scary because things are slowing down but actually I think things are really more right sizing then they're going to have that kind of different perspective on okay right like maybe the property market in fact two weeks ago I was at a um China Vegan Society conference. Now, I was very surprised because most of the time, these vegan conferences are really just a bunch of vegan focused people talking to each other. And in China, a lot of that is about like Buddhist, you know, culture, very nice, very soul healing, um, but also very, very close. But this time, I saw actually even some private equity investors that traditionally would have gone into property coming and saying to these impact funds, hey, like, you know, property is a little bit like risky now. Mm. And uh, we've, you know, we, we've we also put a pause on where we want to deploy this money, but we still have money. So, you know, we want to learn and we want to see how we can deploy this money with an impact, within sustainability and that sort of area as well. Now, of course, that's going to take a little bit of time, but I, I think that's very encouraging. And mm. these are all kind of, you know, more on the ground anecdotes. So mm. it's really cool to see kind of that bird's eye policy side um, that really is what's pushing the shift. I think in China, because there's been so much rapid growth within the last two decades, people are very pragmatic about uh, how they do business in China because they kind of know they can't sh shift the policy. So mm. you kind of don't have that point where they try to oppose something or like most people actually just go, okay, I'm just going to accept that the cards are new now. I've been dealt a new deck of cards. So how am I going to run with that? And so that's why it's important if you're serious about the China market uh, to actually really just see what these cards are and play with the decks that are dealt. And that's how the Chinese kind of um, business community will see that's how they, they make their profits as well. And it's great that these cards are in line with, you know, COP goals, with um, sustainability goals and that sort of, that sort of thing. So yeah, that's uh, my two cents. Yeah. That's, um, such a good example of the importance of understanding the China context, right? Like the maturity of the investing space, the fact that China has strong roots in eating a lot of plant-based protein. So what does that mean for people's diets? Um, and so fascinating to get your on the ground uh, insights on how that is shifting. 
Do you think that there are opportunities for New Zealand future protein, plant-based protein producers to attract investment from China? Yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, what I'm seeing in the space is is twofold, right? Um, I talked about there's the upstream kind of technology side of it uh, mm. if you're doing really high tech you know stuff that mm. eventually will it's it's more like that tech model that will be able to scale once it's at the right uh, cost um, at the right regulation kind of environment and at the right maturity um, and then you've got the ready to kind of go stuff that um, we're seeing growing a lot in the US and, and European markets now to be very honest um, I think that COVID really slowed down the adoption of that in China. Mm. And I think it's also because, you know, people had other things, more urgent things to focus on uh, in terms of, you know, health and security and that sort of thing. So the um, understanding and the education around, you know, maybe plant-based and that sort of stuff had less investment and kind of had a slower uh, takeoff. But I think that the good thing about these products is, a lot of them at the core are healthier. Can, you know, you can have a healthier approach or you can um, target niche uh, markets. For example, we actually don't go out to put plant-based on the top of our uh, marketing hierarchy, but we mm. do have specific customers who come back to us and they're very sticky because they are uh, lactose intolerant or because they mm. want keto. They want to do keto, you know, or uh, they they want to control their diet in some specific way. China being such a huge market, those guys do exist. So what I would say to these companies is, you know, you can focus on that, have a solid kind of business, and then investors might invest in you just because it's good. But if you have high tech stuff, then absolutely, like China, um, the big guys, uh, especially SOE connected guys, if you want to have a conversation about it, you can, uh, you know, connect with me later. I'm sure I'll I'll give you contacts and that sort of thing. Um, But they're definitely looking at that space. And I think that would be really cool for New Zealand. I think, you know, New Zealand being able to transition into more food tech stuff as well, like Mm. not necessarily transition, but like broaden, right? Our Mm. offering in that space, I think can, can really help us transition and get more value out of this new protein economy. So many good insights there and such a good point, which I think relates to what we were talking about earlier about food security and where novel proteins can fit into this priority China has for food security and how technology and food technology can enable more security in that space. Um, Even, do you want to give us a little bit more of a rundown on Was it a surprise to see that food security point pop up in the report or was it pretty understandable from a China context? Um, I think that from within China's sort of policy sphere, that's been something that we've been watching really closely, sort of the re-emergence of food security as not just a top national priority, but the top national priority um, from about you know, 2019. And then by 2020, that was a really, really clear signal. So I think it didn't come as a surprise that we found that theme. I think what was interesting to see what were these areas where uh, food security and sustainability are potentially aligned that could create, you know, synergy or could create a catalyst for some kind of very fast shift or trend or adoption of a new approach. 
And if you don't mind, if I circle back briefly, I do want to highlight as exciting as some of the developments around alternative and novel protein are, one of the really clear signals that came through is that those are really a yes and proposition um, within China's market context, that there's the conversations that are happening are about how they can be additive, how they can take pressure off as demand grows. And that in many ways, China is moving towards a sort of every tool in the toolbox mm. uh, approach toward food security. And so that means, you know, when we talk about a novel protein and that looking 10 years out, hey, this thing could come on market and it could make a big impact. That's that's true, but it also doesn't necessarily mean that that will be at the expense of the existing protein categories on the market and that that trend towards more sustainability, you know, it'll be grass-fed dairy and plant-based dairy and maybe even a novel sort of fermentation product that's still, you know, in the laboratory today. And that makes it a really exciting space, I think, for any company that's ready to get creative, to get collaborative about what they're working on in the space. And yeah, I think as both of you highlighted before, it also creates really compelling opportunities for innovators in New Zealand to draw New Zealand's really, really compelling existing leadership in both the production and food processing and product development side and, you know, work with China on that as well. Really good point. I really like that point around it's not an either or in the protein space, but how are we making it an and? And what does that and future look like, especially for New Zealand as a leader in sustainable, high quality food production? We are just about out of time on our panel discussion, but that was so insightful. Thank you all. Some really interesting takeaways there around what it means for sustainability in a China context. Where are we seeing um, trends coming down the track driven top down from a policy perspective? And how are we going to see these priorities of food security and sustainability really drive rapid adoption of new technology, um, of changes? And how is that going to flow through into changes for the consumer? So thank you guys all so much for sharing those insights. I could have kept talking for so much longer. Um, but just a reminder for everyone watching to get in and read that report. There is so much amazing information in there. It's incredibly juicy. And thank you all for your points. And thank you from me too, to Cleo Gilmore, Evan Pay, Christiana Jew, and Megan Robertson for a superb discussion. I fully agree about the juiciness. And thanks again to the Meat Industry Association, Plant and Food Research, the North Asia Centre for Asia Pacific Excellence and Trivium China for supporting this project. Watch this space for the Council's continued engagement in the sustainable food area. If you'd like to keep in touch with us on this, please drop us a line using the contacts on our website, nzchinacouncil.org.nz. That's where you can also access our Tasting the Future report as well as our back catalogue of other New Zealand China Council podcasts. And to keep up to date on future podcasts, please follow us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud or Spotify. Thanks for listening.